Good morning, everybody. Awesome. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. Excited to be with you. We are in the midst of a series called Navigate. Everybody say Navigate. We're dialoguing on how we as human beings navigate the myriad of complex realities that we will face. And especially as followers of Jesus, how do we deal with these challenging life scenarios and situations? Last week, we talked about navigating conflict. Anyone ever had a difficult, tricky time with that one? We talked about navigating conflict using the model of Jesus and John 4 and the woman at the well, hypothesizing on the reality that what if at the root of every brewing potential conflict is a life-changing conversation waiting to happen. If you missed it, encourage you to check it out. Or if you've got a friend who could use that, encourage you to share it with them. It's on our podcast or our YouTube channel. This week, I want to talk about what will potentially be the most crucial and challenging conversation in this Navigate series. And yet what I feel is probably the most needed this week, I want to talk about navigating sexuality. Stand to your feet. I saw lots of, whoa, yeah, we're going to go there because it's needed and important. I am wearing my Miami Dolphins jersey because we're winning. Y'all, if we could get fourth quarter Tua to become like third and fourth quarter Tua, or dare I believe second, third, and fourth quarter Tua, we could have a football team. But I wore the jersey in advance of playing the Buffalo Bills because... You never know. Romans 12, if you got a Bible, you can turn there. We'll also spend most of our time in 1 Corinthians 6, if you would prefer to be there. I do have a little ram's horn on the stage with me because my mom said, son, you need to hold up the shofar and let people know this is a shofar. So I'm letting you know this is a shofar. Why? Because tonight starts Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah. It's the Feast of Trumpets for any of you who are like me from a Jewish background or not, but you love God. You're welcome to celebrate his parties. God throws parties and everybody's invited. This is a commemoration of God's voice. This this shofar is representative of God's voice and I'm not going to blow it on stage because I don't want to embarrass myself. But maybe if you're lucky, do you want me to blow the shofar on stage? just as I suspected. It's only appropriate to talk about sexuality if I embarrass myself. First, Romans 12, we'll start there and then we'll jump into 1 Corinthians 6. Here we go. Put it up on the screen for me. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Everybody say living sacrifice. You're alive, but you're dead. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern, everyone say pattern, pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul picks up the same subject in 1 Corinthians, the same topic to a different group of believers. He says this, everything is permissible for me. You'll notice that's in quotes. It's a common wisdom proverb of his day. He says, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, again in quotes, but I will not be mastered by anything. Another quote here from his day, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By by his power, he raised Jesus from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. 
Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. That's a quote from the scriptures. He says, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Therefore, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? He's in you. You received him from God and you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Let's pray. Jesus, speak to us this morning and remind us of your ways and your path that is only for our good and flourishing. We trust you. We invite you. Come and speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, get ready. Get ready. I'm going to move this so I don't break it because I bang on the podium. How do we navigate sexuality? In our modern world, as followers of Jesus, our rabbi, our teacher, how do we navigate sexuality? There's quite possibly no topic more difficult, more volatile, more polarizing, more painful, more confusing than this. If I'm being quite honest, I spent two weeks sermon prepping and bathing this joker in prayer because I'd rather not do it. But you can't not do it because sex and sexuality is arguably one of the gods of our day. It's everywhere. God has lots to say about it and out of love for our community and those watching online and those over there watching in Guyana, I feel pastorally motivated because at the beginning of every commandment of God is an ending of hope, life, and blessing. I remember my first exposure to sex and it was through pornography. I was 14 years old, maybe 15 years old and I had a friend in the neighborhood and I came over to hang out and all of a sudden on the TV is something I had never seen before. It's pretty common in my generation. In fact, in subsequent generations and right now, the research shows that most likely kids are going to be exposed to pornography from ages 8 to 11. It's the world we live in. I remember this experience and all these new feelings and all these hormones and all these new images. And I remember like, whoa, and something was like, this is good. But something was also like, this is bad. I, I shouldn't be doing this right now. And I, but I, I didn't really know what to think about it. And I remember these conflicting emotions and and I went over a few more times and it was on the screen a few more times. And finally, I was just so confused and trying to figure this stuff out. I mustered up the courage to talk to this religious leader in my life. It wasn't my parents, but I kind of broached the subject and it was very clear they were absolutely awkward about it. And I was like, oh, that is not who I talk to about sex. And I think one of the tragedies is that this pattern has continued. It's predictable when it comes to the pattern of this world and sex, everything goes and nothing is off limits. There are no restraints at all. And when it comes to the religious approach to sex, there's just no conversation. And it got me thinking about our community of faith and, and how much I love this group and, and the genuine hearts who want to honor God and love people and flourish and bring flourishing to this world. 
If you've grown up in church for any period of time, there's sort of this prevailing thought that permeates our minds. It's like, well, all sins are basically the same. Like Pastor John, is lying is to cheating, is to having sex, is to this. And, and, and yet the Bible says that sexual sins are different. And for most of us in this community who have hurts, wounds, baggage, and failures in this area, it doesn't take reading it in a book. We've experienced it in our lives. Sex sins are different. The shame of sex is heavier. The sexual pain is more acute. Sexual issues leave us more vulnerable. And if you're here and you're struggling with Jesus or church or sexuality or gender or guilt or shame, what you need to hear on the very front is you are not alone. We are struggling. I am struggling. We are grappling as a culture to figure out sex and sexuality. In fact, if there's ever a topic that Jesus could come in and save the day and rescue us from ourselves and show us a different way, this is that topic, and he is here. When it comes to navigating sex and sexuality, it's such a difficult conversation because the conversation is so robust and all-encompassing. It it encompasses identity and body and body image and loneliness and confusion and cravings and faith and doubt and wounds. It's a difficult conversation, but it's a vitally important conversation at the same time. And so we're going to go into the conversation head on, processing with Jesus and his words and his people and asking his spirit to help us navigate sexuality. Are you guys up for that? You're like, I'm stuck here. Dang it. <laughs> We're going to do it. It's going to be all right. Here's where I want to start. If we are attempting to navigate from here to there, let's say we wanted to go from here to New York City or Buffalo, I guess would be more appropriate, to conquer the bills. If you wanted to go from here to there, you have to start with here, right? You have to know where here is on the GPS in order to get to there, correct? So let me start with where we are in our current moment in regard to the current cultural realities surrounding such Point number, sech, I don't know what that is, sex. Point number one is this. The religious approach to sex is unhelpful. You're like, I did not expect to hear that in church. The religious approach to sex is unhelpful. I've done more research on this sermon and, and prayer time than uh, probably double of any other sermon because I feel the weight of this matter and the tendency, whether it's shame or guilt or whatever. And so I'm like, Lord, give me your words and your heart. And in the midst of study, I came across this article that embodied, in, in I feel, a very heartbreaking way, this religious, unhelpful approach to sex. The article was about this couple and they were struggling with infertility. They were a married couple. And they were going to all of the doctors and all of the specialists and, and they were getting reports back and everyone was kind of scratching their heads. They're like, we, we don't know why it's not happening, but this couple was not able to conceive and have a child. And they finally went from one specialist to the next specialist to the next specialist. And they finally sat down with this final specialist and he was going, he said, I'm going through your reports. I'm looking at the hormone chart. I'm looking at everything. I, let me just start here. How often are you guys having sex? And they kind of looked at each other sheepishly and their response was, what is sex? It's a true story. And the clinician kind of put down his pen, took off his glasses. He's like, I, I think we can solve this problem. And he went on to explain to this adult married couple, the birds and the bees, because they lived, they grew up in a religious cult and an oppressive religious cult that basically taught, 
thought about sex as a necessary evil. And so they were like, listen, if we can avoid the conversation and just not have it, we won't have it. And so they literally had no conversation about sex including when they were married and the doctor kind of explained and lo and behold, they were able to conceive mission accomplished and they had a baby. Yeah, this is exciting, but also like, wow. The religious approach to sex, it's, it's just deeply unhelpful. And when I say religion, it can often be a Christian variant of religion. It can be other religions. I preached a whole sermon about religions, but this framework of man ideas, not Bible truth, is not a helpful approach to sex and sexuality. Just to be clear, do we all know who invented sex? Not Adam and Eve, right? They were like, whoa, we figured something out. God, he kind of had to make the biologics to work together. You know what I'm saying? Like God invented sex. In fact, he invented members of the female sexuality that have no purpose other than pleasure. God is not a prude. I just need you to understand. Like, oh my God, how does God feel about sex? Pretty good, he made it up. He's, he's okay with it. He really is. And this religious approach to sex is unhelpful. And point number two, our current cultural approach to sex is toxic. The current cultural approach to sex is topic. Now there is a lot to cover here and, and I might end up doing two weeks on this because I'm not even gonna get into time to get into LGBTQ plus and, and gender identity and all that kind of stuff. But, but I wanna start here unpacking where we've been and where we are. There have been tons of development in generations, generations of unprecedented change in many areas. You've got the internet, you've got technology, you've got the iPhone, or if you're less technologically developed, Android, no shade on Google, because I still like them, but, but there's possibly been no iteration and innovation more significant than when it comes to our thoughts on sex and sexuality. Now, if we back up a couple generations, in the 60s, there were two uh, revolutions that dramatically impacted our landscape and changed society. Anybody guess what those are? The first one was the Jesus Movement Revolution. Some of us in this room, some of us watching online, that's where we met Jesus. There was this radical explosion of, of God's kingdom coming and the gospel moving out. There was the Jesus movement revolution. And then there was what was called the sexual revolution. This happened in the 60s. I would argue that in terms of our culture, the latter is the one that actually stuck and transformed and got a root in society. It was the sexual revolution. Mary Eberstadt, who's written extensively on the subject, defines the sexual revolution as the destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes so long as those involved are consenting adults. Does that sound familiar to you? It's nothing new. It started in the 60s, okay? Now, now this is, we're about two generations in here, um, but it is already clear we have run the experiment and the hypothesis have been unproven. What we are finding is there are serious problems with the ethos of sexuality behind our current cultural moment. Lois Perry in her article in the Wall Street Journal said it like this, the sexual marketplace, which was once strictly regulated, has now been made mostly free. In the West, at least, hookup culture is normative among adolescents and young adults. Today's sexual culture prefer to understand people as freewheeling, atomized individuals, all looking out for number one and all up for a good time. It assumes that the problem is sexual taboos. 
whether religious or otherwise. If sexual taboos were removed, we would then all be liberated and capable of making entirely free choices about our sexual lives, sampling from a menu of delightful options made newly available by the sexual revolution. This is a school of thought. The question is, how is that working for us? We've had some time to kind of flesh this out. How is that working for us? The answer, not based from religious people, but based from cognitive psychologists, sociologists, and researchers is not good, especially for women. It, it, it was sort of perplexing to me. I, like, I'm a Jesus guy. You guys know this, right? I'm a preacher. And so I'm like, I just believe Jesus has the way. Very fascinating to find out that people who don't follow Jesus in our cultural moment are like, whoa, what we're doing is broken. Here are some of the titles of articles I came across. Think how countercultural this is right now. How the sexual revolution has hurt women. That was one. Porn has framed our lives and normalized sexual abuse. That was another. Here's a quote from one of these articles. There's a girl, Sarah, age 23. She writes, growing up, misogyny, sexual harassment, and sexual abuse online was normalized amongst my peers. Libraries of nudes of underage girls were shared on Google Drives, being groped and grabbed at a party was normal, as were the unwanted advances, rape jokes, sexual bullying, and unsolicited nude pics. There were exorbitant pressures on young girls to perform, quote, hotness online. And here's how she wraps up her quote. Porn was the wallpaper that framed our lives, normalizing it all. She goes on to talk about how her generation, which would be sort of millennial Gen Z, was essentially the guinea pig generation, uh, the first one to grow up entirely online with the ubiquitous nature of pornography all over the place. Pornography also is nothing new, but now we have the internet where it's more readily accessible and more easy to access than ever before. Here's my point. I think when it comes to talking about sex and sexuality, I get it if you're like, oh great, please preacher, tell me the modern man or the modern woman about a 2000 year old archaic approach. P yeah, please inform me. It's like, you feel like you're going to your grandparents to ask them how to use Gmail. You're like, please bless your heart. Like, but, uh, but really we're the experts here. Here's what I'm trying to get you to understand. Based off of the research now of the last 60 years, we have found that the biblical approach is not asking you to bench your fantasy football MVP for a bench warmer has been and swap them out. What we're finding is that if the religious approach to sex is unhelpful, the cultural approach to sex is broken, dangerous, and often absolutely destructive. This is what the research is showing us. Sex has now become in our cultural framework. Initially, it was disconnected from marriage, disconnected from male, female, ultimately becoming disconnected from people to people. You, you might think this is, I'm being hyperbole here. In Japan, they are having a massive issue with people no longer having sex with one another. People have realized because if our prevailing sexual ethic is really just about self-serving pleasure, if it's really just an exchange of like biologics and, and chemical hormone interaction, they're like, man, why would I go through the hassle and the drama of people if I could just get my needs met on my own? So they're creating robots for sex. They're doing what's happening is Japan is people are having sex less and less with one another as we're increasingly finding ourselves in the midst of a humanitarian crisis around the topic. The ramifications are massive. 
when sex is no longer about self-sacrificing love but self-serving pleasure, all of a sudden people increasingly lose the ability to connect in deep and lasting ways that they're actually truly longing for. One more quote from Eberstadt, who writes about this extensively. She says, our current moment is a wildly contradictory mix of chatter about, on one hand, how wonderful it is that we've now all been liberated for sexual fun, and on the other hand, how mysteriously impossible it is to find a good, steady, committed partner at the same time. Do you guys see the tension of our current moment? On one hand, we're like, man, do whatever you want. Like, whatever makes you happy, just do it if it feels good. And then on the other hand, we're like, why can't I find anyone who's going to commit to me? They're just doing whatever they want. Yes. Yes. Sexually, what has happened in our current cultural moment is that we've thrown off all restraint, check this, to go after whatever it is that we want, only to find that we now can no longer find what it is we really want. Deep connection and commitment. We're in a crisis. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, I, I find it so interesting. Paul reiterates what would have been popular wisdom of the day. I'm like, it could have been written today. He says, everything is permissible for me. Does that sound familiar? Nothing new under the sun. He says, yeah, yeah, but, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Our cultural framework on sex and sexuality actually views sex as a right. Everything is permissible. There's been this radical shift over the past several generations where now the Christian ethic or the biblical approach to sex would be seen as archaic uh, or, or antiquated or naive at best, but more gravely repressive to our wholeness in living authentic lives because what that means in our cultural framework is being true to who we feel we are. These are my rights. The increasingly embraced notion is our culture is that in our culture is that personal integrity is not following rules from around or above, but it's being true to being free from whatever constraints that might exist and just doing whatever you feel. This is called expressive individualism in social psychology circles. Expressive individualism. It's the guiding MO of our current world. Paul continues in verse 13. He says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In our culture, we view sex as a right. Whatever I feel I can do and I should do and I must do, otherwise I'm being inauthentic to myself. We view sex as an appetite. Man, so listen, you're hungry, gotta eat, gotta eat. We view sex as a right sex, as an appetite. Anthony Grant, by the way, indebted to Anthony Grant, he has a book called Divine Sex, probably one of the best I've read in recent memory, uh, taking the current cultural moment accurately, bringing in data-based analysis, and using the Bible as a framework for sex and sexuality. Divine Sex by Anthony Grant, phenomenal. If you want more reading on the subject, this is what he says. He says, allowing emotional authenticity to guide us in our long-term relationships is like trusting ourselves to the schizophrenic Gollum. Y'all know that from the Lord of the Rings? My precious, that dude. He says, sometimes loyal, sometimes treacherous, but ultimately bent on our destruction. 
I was having a conversation with my barber, and I know I don't have much hair, but I like to keep my beard nice. <laughs> Beat you to the punch there. And I was talking with my barber, and he's not a Jesus guy, but we've had lots of Jesus conversations, and he knows I am, and we're friends. And, and so he's like, hey, man, what do you, what do you, we always kind of, he's like, what are you talking about this week? I'm like, well, I'm talking about the Bible and sex. He's like, whoa. Good for you. <laughs> he's like, hope you enjoy that. And I was like, yeah, man, it's, it's important. And, and so we start talking. He's like, what are you going to say? And so I start going into this whole idea of the religious approach is unhelpful. You know, the current to- cultural approach is toxic. He's like, you know what? I'm not a Jesus guy. You know where I'm coming from. He said, but you know, I, I used to, my, my philosophy on life and sex and whatever used to be do whatever makes you happy. He's like, but I, he's like, and that seems like most young people when I cut their hair, like that's what they're, they're like, man, I just do what makes me happy. He's like, I've just lived long enough now to realize what makes me happy in the moment often makes me miserable for a decade. I was like, bro, you're going to make it in my sermon. That'll preach. The results of our current cultural moments, sexual ethic, are out. And it's unprecedented pain and wounds and abuse and violence and shame. And it is not peace and it is not joy and it is not fulfillment. And here is my core concern pastorally, that we, as followers of Jesus, that we, as humans in our modern world, have conformed to the sexual patterns of this world. That's my big concern. Remember the opening verse? Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. I'm, I'm saying this not in a vacuum. The overwhelming breadth of research on the subject shows that self-professing Christians, by and large, have the same pattern of thought about sex and sexuality than the world does, than our culture does. And I am praying that this morning we would see that if the religious approach is unhelpful, the current cultural approach is toxic, and we would listen to Jesus. Here's my big idea. Here's what I'm hoping we would take away. The world's pattern of sex is actually deforming. But the biblical pattern of sex is transforming. The world's pattern of sex is deforming, but the biblical pattern of sex is transforming. The world's pattern of sex often leads and always inevitably leads to destruction, but the biblical pattern of sex always leads to life. Point number one, if the religious approach to sex is unhelpful, and point number two, if the cultural approach to sex is topic, toxic. Point number three, the biblical approach to sex is redemptive. C.S. Lewis says it like this. The biblical approach to sex is the most culturally unpopular of Christian virtues, you think? He said there's no getting away from it. The Christian rule is, either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. By the way, if you're like, so what exactly is the biblical approach to sex and sexuality? It's right here. Either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence, refraining entirely in all ways, shapes, and forms. He says, now this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts and what feels natural to us that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct as it has now become has gone wrong. It's one or the other. By the way, God's word is clear. The problem is that our cravings have gotten warped and gone wrong. That's what God's word says. Now I get it, to to live, to believe is one thing, but to live like this with the biblical sexual ethic, you will feel like the ultimate cultural oddball. This week was not my um, 
shining week of parenting, I, uh, I accidentally sent my son to school in, uh, in the wrong clothes. Um, I mean, it wasn't entirely that. He, uh, he came up to me and he said, Dad, I got to wear this special shirt for peace day. You see all the peace signs out there? Broward schools did some peace days. Okay. I got to wear like a green shirt. And so I was like, okay. But you know, it, it was one of those mornings. It was early. It's still dark outside early morning. And so that Lucy is doing whatever and I'm trying to get her hair done. And I can't make a ponytail to save my life. And so I was just on the father struggle bus. Any dads relate? You're like, just one of the, some of those mornings. Thank you, Sam. I don't feel like I'm not alone now. Some of those mornings. And so I got my son all ready for school and I got him off and I was like, mission accomplished. And then I get a text from my wife. She says, hey, did you tell Liam to wear his shirt inside out? I knew. I was like, I did not, but it is possible that I dressed him with his shirt on inside out. She's like, why? I'm like, I don't know. It was a tough morning, okay? He was clothed, at least mostly, you know? Like, take your wins. And, and so I got home, and, um, and I was like, hey, bud. He's like, dad, why did you have me go to school with my shirt inside out? I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, bud. And, and he's like, ah, you know, went off and did his thing. Liam's wild. And so I was like, Nancy, I'm so sorry. She's like, yeah, I felt, and my wife is like the shepherd, if you're familiar with like our Ephesians 4 APEP stuff. Like she was like mortified. She's like, oh my God, Liam, did your teacher notice? He's like, yeah. She's like, what'd you say? He's like, my teacher was like, oh, your shirt's on inside out. He's like, it's fine. My dad wanted it like this. She was like, oh my, and then, and then she really, she's like, Liam, did your friends notice? And her little mother heart like melted in the floors. He said, yeah. She's like, oh my God, Liam, what did you say? He's like, I just told him, it's fine. My dad wanted it like this. And then I started thinking about that. And I started thinking about this little boy that apparently right now, God let it stay that way the thing that is most important to him is what dad thinks about. And when his elders said, listen, your shirt's on inside out, he's like, it's fine. My dad wants it like this. And when his peers started looking at him side-eyed, what are you doing? He said, it's fine. My dad wants it like this. And I'm like, what if his kids, when the world looks at us and says, you're not having sex until when? You're not even trying to until what? You're gonna wait how long to do, huh? What if we could just be like, you know, it's fine. My dad wanted it like this. Imagine what could happen. Nancy was like, oh my goodness, Liam, were you embarrassed? He was like, no. He said, I don't care what my teacher thinks. This is what dad wanted. I was like, man, that'll preach. That'll preach. The problem with our current cultural approach to sex is that God says we're amphibians, not biologically. Chill out. You're like, uh, we're not listening to you about sex anymore. I know, okay. What I'm using that as a metaphor, we are create right? Amphibians are created for land and water, right? They can flow in both environments. Humans are created for earth and heaven. We're designed to flow in both environments. Here's the problem. The earth's view on sexuality, cultures, modern cultures view on sexuality is looking at humans in 2D, not 3D. Let me illustrate. Look around the room for a second. Smile at your neighbor. Tell them, chill out. It's okay. We're going to get through this. Okay? Now, cover one eye and do the same thing. Can you see everything? 
You can until you get up and try to walk around like that because what you are lacking is depth perception. You will bump into the chair in front of you. You will smack your neighbor or the wall because while you can see with half the picture, you can see in 2D, you're not created to see in 2D. You were created to see in. That's what our culture is doing with sex. We are walking around because we, we are not going off of the manufacturer's instructions. God who designed us and knows how we were created to flourish and thrive with earth realities and eternal realities. And so with 2D lenses on, we are missing the long-term ramifications of our actions and decisions. And it's no wonder that we are inevitably bumping into walls and scra scraping and knees and breaking legs. You say, what? Well, what would that look like? How, how does that flesh out in our modern world, this 2D vision? How many of you are married? Show of hands, how many of you are married? All right, one time for the married people. You did it. Woo! Hands down. How many of you are not yet married but want to be married someday? Hands in the air. All right, I'm trying to help y'all out. Look around the room. Hey, oh, okay, put them down. How many of you, show of hands one last time, how many of you plan to commit adultery? What a stupid question, right? Pastor John, no one plans to commit adultery. That's ridiculous. Well, they do. Why? Why? Like even, I mean, think about, your, maybe you're here and you're not a Jesus follower. You're like, listen, I don't, I don't ascribe to Jesus' sexual ethic. But most people would say, even if they're not a Jesus follower, like, I, I, don't, I don't want to cheat and I don't want to be cheated on, right? That's a pretty normative expectation for committed monogamous relationships. But we do. Why? Because the research is out. If you have not learned to control your body and sexual appetite before marriage, you will not control your body and sexual appetite after marriage. God is not trying to spare you from fun. He's trying to save you from pain. He's trying to give you the, help you walk a path towards the deepest longing of your heart. Anybody that's experienced divorce, anyone that's had to walk through one parent cheating on the next, you know the emotional carnage that that causes in your life. Man, I will never do that. And then, if we're not careful, we conform to the sexual pattern of this world, which says, man, sex is not a big deal. I'm going to sleep with that person, sleep with that person. And you live a life sleeping with people you're not married to. So then you get married and do what? Sleep with people you're not married to. Because you play how you practice. We just don't think about it. It's not that we're bad people. We just unexamine the path and we're like, I don't think, I think if we were to actually consider it, we'd be like, yeah, I guess in my mind, like I'm gonna sleep with this person, sleep with that person. And I get it. That's what culture says. I mean, do whatever. Like, and then you do it and then you're like, but, but when I get married, I'm not gonna do it anymore. What's gonna happen? Like a magic switch? Boop. I am monogamous now. You've trained yourself for 15, 20, 25 years to sleep with whoever. What's gonna change? The evidence is nothing. Number one cause of divorce, can you guess what it is? Infidelity. And Jesus is so smart and he's so compassionate. And he's like, I'm not, I'm not trying to put some repressive, spoil everybody's fun, be the sexual police officer in heaven trying to shut you down. That is a weird analogy for Jesus. 
I'm trying to lead you on the path of flourishing in life. I'm trying to give you the very thing that you've been longing for your whole life. I said, man, I'm going to, I'm going to meet this person. I'm going to meet this man, this woman, and we're going to be committed and we're going to raise a family and we're going to be present for our kids. And they're going to know a solid, stable family environment. And God's like, yes, but you're walking the opposite direction. Don't walk the opposite direction. I'm a pastor, so I, I know this conversation publicly doesn't happen often, but it happens privately all the time. People are like, okay, 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 okay. So what is flea sexual morality? I got it. What exactly, you always know when the exactly goes in there, when, what exactly is sexual immorality? Our culture says sexual immorality or, or things out of bounds sexually basically has to do with consent. Anything that is not consensual is out of bounds. That's what our culture says. The Bible takes it one step deeper. The Bible says it's not just about consent, just, okay, to be clear, just, that matters. It's not just about consent. It is ultimately about covenant. And what Jesus has to say, we're finally catching up to in regard to science and biologics. Verse 15 Paul says in Corinthians 6, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. And then he makes a statement. Do you not know that he or she who unites himself with a prostitute, with somebody else, is one with them in body? For it is said, this is Bible, the two become one flesh. I know in our current cultural moment, the prevailing thought is that it's, it's just sex. Come on, Pastor John. Like, are we really giving a whole sermon? We're talking about sex. It's like Alan Iverson, sexual therapist. We talk about sex. We talk about practice. Like, it's just sex. And we have this prevailing idea that it can just be casual sex. I need to let you know that casual sex is a lie. In fact, biologically, there's no such thing as casual sex. It's not just Bible. God's been saying it for thousands of years. Culture is now realizing it within the last 50, 60 to 100 years. I was talking to a medical friend. They said climax, sexual climax, releases a rush of neurotransmitters and hormones. Dopamine intensifies sensation of romantic love. Oxytocin and vasopressin, I think I'm saying those right, deepen emotional attachment. Literally, biologically, soul ties are real. This idea of the two becoming one flesh is what often is referenced in Christian or spiritual circles as soul ties, this sort of mysterious, emotional, spiritual attachment that you make with another person when you engage in sexual relationship with them. God's been saying that for a while. What we're realizing is biologically that is exactly what happens when the two become one flesh. Here's another 2D blind spot of our culture that I just want to toss out here while we're having the conversation. In our culture, it is abundantly normative to cohabitate. What that means is you're not married to somebody, but you're thinking that you might want to put a ring on it. You might want to say, yes, I do whatever you might want to marry. And so the prevailing idea is, man, you bet if you're thinking you want to spend the rest of your life with this person, you better live with them and try it out first. How many of you have heard this before? Like this, like, yeah, that's what, that's what culture does, right? It's sort of the try it before you buy it mentality. Here's the problem. We've run that experiment already. And guess what? It does not work. 
You wanna know the data on try it before you buy it cohabitation? Couples that live together before they get married, not only are gonna inordinately struggle with keeping sexuality between them and Jesus because they're not married, because when you're living with someone, hopefully you're attracted to someone, and if you're sleeping with someone, you're gonna be sleeping with someone, right? So like, logically we go there. It's not just that if you're trying to stay sexually pure. If you're thinking you wanna marry them, the rate of divorce for couples who cohabitate before they get married is 40 to 50% higher. Literally, you are taking like this beautiful recipe of your pending marriage and throwing rat poison in it and being like, this is gonna be awesome. Like it's the worst idea. Jesus is like, I've been trying to tell him, son. I've been trying to tell him. Like, if you're thinking you wanna spend the rest of your life with someone, do not live with them before you get married. You're setting yourself up for failure. That's not just what God says, by the way. That's what the data says. That's what the research says. Paul says in verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits, it's, it's outside the body, but he or she who sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom will you receive from God? And you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Paul ends this whole conversation about sexuality, bringing them out of their current earth moment and helping them zoom out to the bigger picture. He says, listen, yeah, yeah, I know you got cravings. Yeah, 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 I know you got urges. Yeah, 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 I know you got an appetite. But remember, you're not just living for earth. You're an amphibian. You're living for heaven too. And sex matters, but it doesn't matter most. It doesn't matter most. He said, your body, it's a temple for what? God, his presence his spirit. Your body is a temple where God wants to dwell, where God wants to remain. Therefore, honor God with your body. Friend, this world will tell you that you are just an animal and you're just a, a creature of biologics and you're just emotions and hormones. And listen, if you feel it, go for it. God says, you're so much more than that. You're beautiful. You're amazing. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And if you follow Jesus, you're his. He says, so honor me with your body. Points of application here. The first one is very simple. Paul lays it out. When it comes to sexual morality, it's four letters and one word. F-L-E-E. -E. Flee. Some of you were like, four letters, talking about sex, what are you going to say? Flee. Cleanse your minds. Flee. When you are tempted, Paul says, don't resist. Don't try to fight it. Don't be like, man, I've been spiritually working out for this moment. I'm not going to lust. I'm not going to lust. Paul says, man, spirit of stupid, get off you. Spirit of wisdom come upon you. Run the other direction. Flee sexual morality. Flee. Verse 19, he says, offer your body as a living sacrifice. We love to sing songs. And in this community, I love this community of faith because we mean it. Think about your body in the same way. It's not just your songs that you want to be authentic from the heart. It's your life. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Today, I realize in this topic, I shared a little bit of my story. I have not been perfect in this area. I have lots of mistakes and regrets and wounds like many of us in this room do, like I'm sure a ton watching online over in Guyana. Here's the great news. Because of the grace of God, you can be forgiven, healed, restored, no more shame. And it can start this morning. Yeah, if you're still here, if you're still breathing oxygen, hope is not lost. Jesus can redeem. Lastly, verse 20, 
believe the gospel. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, the things that destroy us when it comes to sex and sexuality. He says, do you not know that the wicked won't inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. Why? Because it's easy to be deceived because lots of voices will tell you otherwise. But God says, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. He's like, oh man, does he know our church? No, he knows humans. He says, you have a past, but that's who you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you feel dirty this morning because of your past, because of things you've done or because of things that have been done to you, He can clean you, and he wants to, and he loves you. I'll land it here, and then we'll close in the final chorus of worship together. I came across a story this week that, at first reading, I thought was, was so perfect for the sermon, and then ended up being used for a very different reason. But I came across the story of Heidi Klum and Seal. Heidi Klum, I guess, was like a model, supermodel, something. And Seal was like the fly like an eagle into the, y'all know who I'm talking about, into the future. No? Nobody knows that song? Okay. If you're 35 or older, you're like, yeah. All right. Anyways, he's a dude. And they got married. They were both celebrities. And, uh, and it, it, when, as I started reading the article, it, it seemed initially very inspiring. Oh, there they are on the screen. Okay, now you see them. Uh, it seemed very inspiring because they were married, and uh, every year they would do this, like, vow renewal. I was like, man, you know you got money, by the way, when you can do a big old vow renewal every year. Every year they would do this big vow renewal, and I was like, man, this is so awesome. And they were going through, and they were giving quotes from each one of them, and we wanted it to be just a feast of our love, and we wanted to continue to, you know, commit ourselves to one another, and it gets to the end of the article, and I'm like, come on, man, look at the way this is being done. And they're like, and now they are divorced. Golly. And as I start reading through the article, and Looking back through the quotes, they were saying things like, we just wanted to commit to one another for another year. We just wanted to make sure that our hearts were, were belong to one another exclusively for another year. We just wanted to make sure that we would stay strong in our relationship for another year. And what was happening is that each year they were renewing an annual contract of love. And when they felt like breaking the contract, you pay some penalties, attorney fees, breach the contract and you're out. There's a reason that God framed sex to be only in the, con in the context of marriage because sex ultimately is pointing to something. Every single human being is longing to be fully known, like the garden says, naked and unashamed. Every single human being is longing to give themselves away, to be seen in all of their nakedness, metaphorically and literally, and to be loved and accepted and cherished, which is why God says, hey, the only spot that I want sex to happen is in covenant. 
We don't do covenant in our culture, so let me explain the difference. Contract says, here's what I'm gonna do, here's what you're gonna do, and if you break it, peace out, I'm gone, because we have a contractual obligation to one another, but covenant is different. Marriage is a covenant. It uses words like, for better or for worse, till death do us part. Covenant says, listen, whether you hold up your end of the bargain or you're struggling, I'm with you in the struggle. And ultimately, the initiator of covenant is God himself. We long for covenant. We long for this committed relationship where we say, listen, even when I'm, I'm blowing it, even when I'm lagging, even when I'm trying my best, but I'm, I'm failing, even when I'm a mess, you'll still stick around. In the garden, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. It was pointing to something. It wasn't just about sex. It was about the longing of every human heart. In the gospel, God sees us naked and unashamed because of Jesus. We're made whole, we're accepted, we're forgiven, we're changed, we're transformed by the renewing of our minds because of Jesus. And I realize in our modern world that when it comes to this topic, many of us in this room watching online over there in Guyana are hurting, deeply reminded maybe of things you would love to forget. Maybe as I referenced earlier, you've been a victim of abuse and I'm so sorry. Maybe you have struggled or are still struggling with deep, deep wounds. Maybe you feel like a failure. Pastor John, I, I knew better and I've been so reckless and I've been so lawless and I've got all of these issues and baggage that I've been, if I'm being honest, I put on myself. I put myself in those positions. And maybe your question in this area is like the woman at the well from last week. If I come to God, will he even take me back? Yes. 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 But what about? Yes. But I should have. Yes. It, it's the unbelievable, inexplicable, don't experience it anywhere else on the planet, grace of God, that he knows our frame and he sees our fallenness. And even if or when we knew better, he says, I know and I still love you. Come home. Jesus offers eternal life, binding and eternal covenant. When we are faithless, he is still faithful, scripture says, because he can't go against his nature. And those who put their trust in him, they will never be put to shame. And if you're here this morning or watching online and you are broken, maybe you've drifted, Maybe it's been weeks, months, years, or decades, and this has been the thing. And you just find yourself perpetually wrestling with shame and feelings of inadequacy. I have great news for you. You don't have to struggle in that way anymore. He's inviting you. Turn to him. Come home. Why don't you join me as we pray? You can bow your head and close your eyes if you'd like, just for a moment of quiet and, and privacy between you and God. If you're here this morning and 
And this has been an area of significant challenge and destruction for you. If this has been the area where relationships have been destroyed, if this has been the area where hurt and wounds and trauma has held you back, if this has been the area that if you're being truly honest, you have held above even Jesus himself. Jesus, you can have access to every facet of my life, but my sex life is mine. I'm gonna do what I want. And you know it's not working. I want to invite you to repent. The word means to change your mind. It definitely, eventually, inevitably precipitates a change of action in life as well. If you didn't like to invite Jesus in, there's healing and wholeness and security and peace and forgiveness and love. It is found in Jesus. You've maybe been looking for it in sex and you haven't been able to find it because sex always overpromises and underdelivers and leave us feeling maybe more empty than we were in the first place. But if you would turn to Jesus, he is the desire of your soul and the longing of your heart. It's him. Maybe it's for the first time. Maybe you've been straying and and this morning, it's time to come home. Whatever the case might be, his arms are open wide. I was, as I was going through and praying and bathing this sermon in prayer, the, the image of the prodigal son story popped into mind. If you don't know the story, this guy goes off and he knows the father. He knows the father loves him. He knows, he, he knows all the things. And yet he decides, man, I'm going to do it my own way. And he goes off and he squanders his life and he makes foolish decisions and he ends up in a horrible place. And he says, man, I might as well go back. And maybe if I go back, God will let me be a servant and work with pigs or do something crazy. But maybe he'll, he'll not leave me to die. And this guilty son starts making his way back and says, while the father was still a far, while the man was still a far way off, the father sees him and runs to him. And maybe you're there and you're like, John, Pastor John, I have fallen so far. I have strayed so far. It's going to take months. It's going to take years. It's going to take decades. No, it won't. There's going to be a process involved maybe for some things, but the process doesn't begin with months or years. It begins with a single step, and then the father runs. We just have to turn. He's the one who runs. He makes the progress. It's his grace. He never gave up on you. There is covenant hope available to you. Earlier before service, I, I had somebody text me, and they said, hey, I, I feel like God's given me a, a thought to encourage somebody. And the thought is, I'll satisfy your hope and overwhelm you with my goodness. I'll satisfy your hope and overwhelm you with my goodness. Let me close this out in prayer. Jesus, we need you in every facet, in any sector, in every area of our lives, but especially when it comes to sex and sexuality. Lord, we need you. God, we long to be the type of people that when a watching world looks and says, oh, what are you doing? How are you doing? Why are you doing? And sneers and laughs and mocks that we can say, man, I don't, this is what my dad wanted. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We trust you. Your ways are better. Your path is true. 
Lord, I pray a blessing over this congregation. You would bless them and keep them. Make your face shine upon them and be gracious to them. Lift up your countenance upon them and give them your shalom, shalom. Perfect peace, wholeness, and wellness in every aspect and fiber of their being. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.